Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Have y'all ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Yep. You ever heard that? You think that's true? Yep. Yeah, U- universally. I think most of us feel like there's some truth to that, at least, right? I'm sure all of us have been hurt by someone who was lashing out because they were hurting, you know? But I don't think we talk about this enough. The opposite is true, too. See, it's not quite as catchy of a phrase, but something like healthy people help people, something like that. That's true, too. When we have experienced healing, we are much more likely to be a part of bringing healing to others. When we have experienced hope and love and grace, we are much more likely to be distributors of hope and love and grace to others. Back in August, we kicked off something called a year of healing and wholeness, and it's based on Jesus' words in John 10.10, where he says he came to bring us, humanity, life and life to the full. But you see, even though that's Christ's desire for us all, many of us are not experiencing it, at least in the way that we would like to be. As we continue coming out of the pandemic and grappling with so many difficult things happening in our world and in our personal lives, I think most of us, based on my feelings, my conversations with you all, we are experiencing some combination of tired and overwhelmed and anxious and distressed. There's good things in there too, but it's not easy. And I think one of the hardest parts is we aren't exactly sure what to do about that or how our faith is supposed to help. So that's why we've spent this year really diving deeply into how we can experience healing, wholeness, and the fullness of life that Jesus talks about, both as individuals and as a holistic church family. In the fall, we talked about what prevents us from experiencing healing and wholeness. We did a set of sermon series talking about what gets in the way. And then in the spring, we've transitioned to talking about what promotes healing and wholeness, specifically what it means to be a wholehearted person. Brene Brown pioneered much of our understanding of what it means to practice wholeheartedness, wholehearted living. In her groundbreaking book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she says this, the wholehearted journey is not the path of least resistance. It's the path of consciousness and choice. And to be honest, it's a little countercultural. The willingness to tell our stories, to feel the pain of others, and to stay genuinely connected in a disconnected world is not something we can do half-heartedly. To practice courage, compassion, and connection is to look at life and the people around us and say, I am all in. That's what it means to live life wholeheartedly. You see, in addition to being a best-selling author and professor, Brene Brown is also a Christian. And she talks regularly about her faith, and she's deeply committed to following the way of Jesus. And because of that, I cannot help but see how much the words and works of Christ are all over her explanation of wholehearted living. 
Because you see, Jesus is truly the embodiment of courage, compassion, connection, and countercultural love. Being a wholehearted person, having wholehearted faith, starts with how we show up, how we carry ourselves. So back in August, we did this series called Wholehearted Postures. And we looked at these postures that Jesus chose to inhabit during his time on earth and how we should do the same. Then we just finished up a series called Wholehearted Practices, rhythms in our life that promote fullness and healing and hope for us and for the world around us. Well, this morning we are wrapping up this semester and this entire year of healing and wholeness with a series called Wholehearted People. And it's really what it looks like to be not just wholehearted as individuals, but wholehearted as a community. What it means to be a wholehearted church, a community of faith that cultivates healing and wholeness because healthy people help people. Wholehearted people promote wholeness and restoration. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four characteristics of a community like this. Wholehearted people are welcoming They are sacrificial, they are communal, and they are courageous. So we're going to talk about what does it mean for us as a community to embody those things. But before we jump into the first characteristic, what it means to be a welcoming community, I want to talk a little bit about why coming together and being wholehearted people matters so much, especially as it pertains to our journey toward healing and wholeness. Because here's the thing about church. Maybe more than any other community, church has the ability to both inflict harm and provide healing. I spend a lot of time talking about the harm that toxic faith communities and leaders cause. Not because I hate the church, because I love it. And I believe deeply in the potential of healthy faith communities to cultivate healing and wholeness. I believe that because I've seen it hundreds of times here at Restore with y'all, but I also believe it because of work from psychologists and researchers and social scientists and academics and pollsters. I've shared these stats before, but I'm going to share them again this morning because I think they are so vitally important for us to understand as we try to step into being a wholehearted faith community. Every year for the last 20 years, Gallup has conducted a poll asking Americans to assess their mental health. It probably doesn't surprise you that the scores recently, over the last couple of years, were very, very bad. We feel more isolated, alone, depressed, and anxious than in any other time since they started doing this poll, not just by a little bit, by more than eight percentage points across the board. Now, Gallup usually finds when they do this survey that certain subgroups experience worse or better mental health based on what has happened in any given year, but not recently. Literally every single subgroup experienced a decline in mental health. Every race, gender, political affiliation, sexual orientation, marital status, age group, household income group, everybody. And I want us to to lean into that for a second because these aren't just like statistics on a page. These numbers represent our family, our friends. They represent me and you. Almost everyone I talk to knows someone who has lost a loved one to COVID, lost a job, struggled with anxiety or depression, felt alone. We continue to walk through mass shootings and abuse scandals, war, refugee crises, contentious election cycles, 
sharp rises in Christian nationalism and racism and sexism and, and every other harmful ism that seeks to exclude and put down people. It's no wonder that the Gallup poll showed that every group saw a decline in their mental health. Every group, that is, except one. There was one solitary subgroup of people who actually saw an increase in their mental health over the last few years. Any ideas who that might be? People deeply committed to a faith community. People deeply committed to a faith community. The Gallup poll showed that only the only subgroup that was able to navigate the last couple of years in a way that actually improved their mental health were weekly religious service attenders. And that could be in person or online. Even during the nightmarish couple of years that we've had, folks who were deeply committed to a religious community experienced a four-point increase in mental health and rated their mental health on average 12 points higher than every other subgroup. And this is bigger than one Gallup poll. You may or may not know, but research done by psychologists and social scientists universally support the conclusion that commitment to a healthy religious community is good for human health. I can point you to dozens of studies. I can send them to you if you want. Religious engagement leads to higher levels of physical health, resilience, happiness, pro-social behavior, altruism, all of these different things. Now, again, that doesn't mean that unhealthy churches don't exist. They do, and they hurt people, and I believe they should be called out for the pain that they cause. I believe that we should do everything we can to pursue justice for victims of spiritual abuse and hold perpetrators of abuse accountable. But those who experience spiritual abuse and trauma firsthand, they're not the only ones that suffer. You see, pain like this, it actually has something that we call first and second order effects. The first order effects are obvious, right? I went through some really significant spiritual abuse at a church I worked at in seminary. It took a whole lot of therapy and healthy community to work through it. I'm not all the way through it yet. <laughs> Getting there, working through it. Those are first order effects. But second order effects, they're sometimes harder to see. Like I have friends who walked with me through their, those times when the abuse was happening, and they were so disgusted by the behavior of that church and those leaders that they decided to never attend church ever again anywhere at all, right? Second order effects. On a larger scale, this happens a lot with the way many churches treat specifically LGBTQ plus folks. You see, when people are excluded or marginalized based on sexual orientation or gender, the first order effects, they're very easy to see, right? We see things like conversion therapy and the horrors that that causes, and it's illegal now in most states. We see queer folks hurt, traumatized, first order effects. But the second order effects are there too, and they're devastating and pervasive. I bet you know people who refuse to attend any church not because maybe how they've been treated directly, but because how they've seen churches treat people that they love. Last December, a writer named Brandon Flannery conducted an online survey to see why people are leaving churches at such rapid rates. He, did 12, he, he worked with 1,200 different people and asked them a series of questions about why they're leaving. And do you know what the number one answer was by a wide margin? Put it up. The exclusion and marginalization of LGBTQ people. That's the top one there. Number one. Number two was a lack of Christ-like behavior from believers. 
Guess what came in almost at the very bottom? Theological issues. Third from the bottom at 2%. My friends, for the most part, people are not leaving the church because they find our core beliefs too outlandish or our ethics too demanding, and they're certainly not walking away because they reject the person and work and teachings of Jesus. They are leaving because way too many churches and Christians claim the name of Jesus but act absolutely nothing like him. That's why people are leaving. This is true for literally millions of people. As recently as 1992, 90% of Americans consider themselves Christians. 70% were a part of a church. Today, about two-thirds of Americans consider themselves Christians, and less than half, for the very first time in our country's history, are a part of a faith community. These are the first and second order effects. But this isn't the end of the story. We have the ability to come together as healthy church communities, as imperfect as we are, to help bring healing to both first and second order effects of spiritual trauma and pain and church hurt. We can meet the immediate needs of those who have experienced church hurt directly and work to build something healthier to offer those who may have left church behind. When I'm coaching other pastors who are trying to do this same thing to cultivate these healthy church faith communities, I often call this dual role, triage and transformation. We have the ability and the responsibility to do both of those things. This is the work of the church. I love how Rachel Held Evans describes it in her final book called Wholehearted Faith. She says, humans are fickle, faith can be fragile, and the church That rambunctious collection of the fickle and the fragile is a broken and complicated institution. Wholehearted faith means putting yourself at risk, though, of being hurt by that institution and its people. Yet, I have not managed to find a corner of it where grace cannot break through and where there is not enough spiritual oxygen for that grace to grow. If we make ourselves vulnerable to the possibility of hurt, we also open ourselves up to the hope of healing, to the hope of being touched by that ridiculous grace. My friends, God wants to journey with us toward healing. He wants to give us the tools and the support that we need to experience wholeness. And I believe one of the greatest tools God has given us is healthy faith community. In her wonderful book called All About Love, Bell Hooks says it so succinctly, rarely, if ever, are any of us healed in isolation. Healing is an act of communion. And I think until we really grab hold of this truth, we will not experience the fullness of life Jesus desires for us. Until we let go of the lie that says we can do this all on our own, we won't be able to step into that healing and that wholeness. But... This only works if it's available to everyone. This only works if it's available to everyone. So with the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about the first characteristic of a wholehearted church. That is people who are welcoming. Quick side story. Um, Me and and Matt, our worship community pastor, and uh, uh, Lindsay Contreras, um, our executive pastor, we office together during the week. And I was like, I don't like welcoming. This is not the word that I want to use. 
And we looked on thesaurus.com for like an hour together, the three of us, found nothing. So we're going with welcoming. But what I want to tell you about it is that it's not enough. Welcome is not enough, right? Hospitality is not enough. Even inclusion is not enough. What we're going to talk about is this idea of wholehearted hugs for people, of fully bringing folks in to a community more than welcome, more than toleration, more than acceptance, more than inclusion. It is a radical, compassionate, sacrificial love that we're talking about for absolutely everyone. So I'm going to use welcoming. It's not the word that I wanted to use, but I'm not sure one exists in the English language because I looked for a long time. Okay, so I want to look at the final words from Jesus to talk about what it means to be a welcoming community after he rose from the dead, right before he ascended into heaven. This passage is often called the Great Commission because these are the marching orders given by Jesus to the folks who would launch and lead Christ's church. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. You can look on your phone or in your Bible. The verses also be behind me. So it says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus says, I have all authority. God has given it to me. I have all authority, and I am using it to tell you to make disciples of all nations. All authority, all nations. Now, the make disciples command by itself would not have been surprising at all. Discipleship was not only what they had been participating in with Jesus those last three years, it was also the most common training model for religious folks in this time and place. So Jewish religious leaders called rabbis would select a group of people to apprentice them as their disciples. And each disciple would be trained by their rabbi in their rabbi's specific belief and behaviors with the eventual goal of becoming a rabbi themselves someday and then having disciples of their own. This was the goal. Now, Although there were some significant differences between Jesus' discipleship methods and the average rabbis, most notably that Jesus included women and uneducated folks, Jesus did the same things that I mentioned just then with his disciples. He walked with them, he trained them, he told them about how he understood scripture, his interpretation of it, what it meant to commune with God, all of these things. He trained them up in his beliefs and behaviors with the understanding that someday they would do it for others. So when Jesus tells them, go and make disciples, they would have simply assumed it was time for them to go out and start doing the thing they'd been doing for the last three years with another group of people. What would have been both shocking, though, and absolutely radical and kind of borderline heretical was Jesus' emphasis on all here. All authority belongs to Jesus, and his followers are told to make disciples of all nations, now, you don't need a seminary degree or training in the Greek language of the New Testament to understand what all nations means. Jesus is saying, make disciples of all kinds of people. Now, it's only by demonstrating and declaring that he has all the authority that Jesus is actually able to make a statement like this. Why? Well, because it's in direct contradiction with a portion of the covenant of Moses and various Old Testament laws concerning who was considered clean and acceptable and who wasn't. 
The way those passages have been interpreted by many rabbis in that day meant that God was for some folks and not for other folks. So with this statement, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that he is doing something different. He is starting something new, a new kingdom, one that encompassed all of heaven and earth, and it was going to welcome absolutely everyone in. He has been given all authority, and what does Jesus do with his unlimited authority? He makes the most radically welcoming statement the world had heard up until this point. Go and make disciples of all people. Go and welcome anyone and everyone into my new kingdom. And that small group of people, it takes the most radically welcoming statement in history and it creates the most radically welcoming group of people in history, the first church. In his book called Surprise the World, Mike Frost talks about how this first church's posture played out in the Roman Empire of the first century. You see, they had no idea, the Romans, how this group of people with seemingly nothing in common was not only coming together in equality, but spending their time and their money serving others. He says it like this, in the miserable world of the Roman Empire, Christians not only proclaimed the mercy of God, but also demonstrated it. They not only fed the poor, they welcomed all comers, regardless of their socioeconomic status. The noblemen embraced the slave. Moreover, Christians opened their fellowship to anyone, irrespective of, ethnic, of ethnicity, and they promoted social relationship between the sexes and within families. They were literally the most surprising alternative society, and their conduct raised an insatiable curiosity among the average Roman. The early church, y'all, was so welcoming, so servant-hearted that the Romans did not know what to do with them. They were baffled by this. In a world that was so structured around hierarchy, around who was in and who was out, who was clean and who was not, who had honor and who needed to give it to the people who had honor, Christians were creating a completely flat, welcoming society. But this transformation from exclusive to welcoming it didn't happen overnight. In fact, God had to make it clear over and over and over again that his new kingdom was actually for anyone and everyone, that he really did mean all people. These first followers of Jesus were continually confronted by personal and societal prejudices that they harbored. I imagine it usually went something like this. Okay, Jesus, we know you said to make disciples of all people, but you surely can't mean these people, right? You mean like the other, not these people, though, right? And Jesus would say something like, yeah, no, those people. I meant everybody. All means all. One of the biggest prejudices harbored by the early church centered around race and ethnicity. Many of the Jewish Christians had been taught their entire lives that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were unclean. Through the Mosaic Covenant and Old Testament law, many of them were actually forbidden from associating them in certain kinds of ways. Now, you can imagine how difficult it would have been being taught that it was wrong that God forbid you to associate with someone, to go from that to being a part of the same church family with them. That is a radical shift. And Peter, one of Jesus' best friends and the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, had a particularly hard time with this. 
So much so that God basically staged a divine intervention with him about it. We find the story in Acts 10. I'm going to summarize it for us today because we don't really have time to go into it. But if you want to go back and read this whole chapter, Acts 10, it is an amazing passage. But here's what happens. So one day, Peter is praying, and God causes him to kind of fall into this like trance sleep thing. And then God shows him a collection of animals that Jewish people were forbidden from eating. And the voice says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And this is what it says, Acts 10, 14. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three different times. And then Peter comes out of the trance. He's a little shaken up, right? Doesn't exactly know what to do. He hears people calling his name from downstairs. So he walks downstairs and he finds this group of men sent by someone he doesn't know named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion and a Gentile. He is both unclean and a soldier in the military that is currently occupying the Jewish land. This is like worst of the worst. This is like, surely you don't mean these people, Jesus. So these men invite Peter to come and spend the night at Cornelius' house. Again, the voice of God comes to Peter, tells him to accept the invitation and go to Cornelius' house. Peter is not happy about it, but he reluctantly obeys. He's so reluctant, though, in fact, that when he arrives at Cornelius' house the next day, the first words out of his mouth are, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. That's not how I would start this sentence, this, this visit with Cornelius. Also, he commanded like a legion of Roman soldiers. So Peter's, I don't know, he's got some intestinal fortitude. But God showed me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Not exactly the best way to make friends and influence people, but you have to admire Peter's authenticity in the moment. Peter was nothing if not blunt, right? You also have to admire the restraint shown by Cornelius' household because no one jumps in and punches Peter for saying this, which I think would have been totally appropriate, honestly. Peter goes on to say, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter says, I now realize This is the same guy who spent three years in Jesus' inner circle. The same guy who had a front row seat to the all authority, all nations talk, great commission that Jesus gave. But only now is he truly submitting to Jesus' authority and welcoming everyone in to this new family that God's building. Sometimes it takes time for people. Sometimes it takes time for us. Now listen, I was not going to say this, but I think that I should. I think that for us, most of us here at Restore, we're pretty good at welcoming. I feel like that's true about us, you know? I feel like maybe sometimes we are not good at welcoming people who are not as welcoming, right? We struggle with that a little bit. Sometimes we have a tendency to trade one exclusionary stance for another. I know I do. Maybe I'm just projecting on you all. But I want you to know that it takes time for people. It took years for Peter. So I'm not asking you to put yourselves in situations where you're being harassed and abused, or I don't want you to have good boundaries, and I want you to to care for yourself well, but I also want you to be patient with people who are trying to figure this out. 
be patient with people who have, told certain, who have been told that certain kinds of people are not welcome or unclean or not enough, right? And now they're just kind of experiencing, oh, wait, maybe God really did mean all, you know? Let's go slow with folks, okay? All right. I think we see these divine interventions for the purpose of radical inclusion all over the book of Acts in the most beautiful ways. You see, some of the early Christians, they believed that folks with disabilities had been cursed by God and should not be included. So in Acts 3, God sends Peter to heal diseases and to welcome in people who had been disabled since birth to say, no, 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 all means all, everybody belongs. Others believe that the poor shouldn't be included. So in Acts 6, God sends Stephen to give food to the hungry and welcome in people who were experiencing poverty. Some people thought sexual minorities weren't allowed in God's kingdom. So in Acts 8, God sends Philip to witness and baptize the Ethiopian eunuch who had been previously forbidden from entering into the temple because of his status as a sexual minority eunuch. Some people even believe that women shouldn't be included. So in Acts 16, God sends Paul to welcome in a woman named Lydia, and Lydia would go on to start the very first Christian church in Europe inside of her home. Pastor Lydia. This happened over and over and over again. These early followers of Jesus had to keep asking themselves some version of this question. Am I going to submit to the authority of Jesus and welcome all people? Or am I going to submit to my own prejudice, the cultural expectations that I've been handed by someone else and exclude people? And when they succumbed to their own prejudice and they built walls to keep people out, Jesus would faithfully just come in and knock them down and remind his followers that they have no authority to exclude anyone. Jesus was given all authority, and he's using it to welcome all people into his kingdom. I think about it like this. We talk about Restore being this this table, right, where we all come and, and anyone has a seat and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. That it's not our table, you know. We don't get to decide who's allowed to sit here and who's not. It's not our party. We don't make the guest list, right. We don't say these are the people that are allowed to come. These are the people who aren't. Jesus made it abundantly clear. Anyone who wants a seat has one. Anyone who accepts an invitation can come. This is a place for all people. And even though this early church sometimes struggled to fully live out this command from Jesus, they became the most welcoming group the world had ever seen, baffling to the Romans around them for their radical welcome. That's who they were. And listen, that's who we must be too. That's who we must be. That's why our vision here at Restore is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. No matter who you are, what you've done, or what you've been told, you and everyone else who wants one has a seat at Jesus' table with their name on it. And we've seen the restoration that takes place from being a fully welcoming church. We've seen some of these first and second order effects of spiritual trauma that I talked about earlier be healed. We've seen people come to faith and come back to faith. We've been able to offer both triage and transformation to absolutely everyone. 
imperfectly, yeah. But it's beautiful to be a part of. It's beautiful to be a part of. And this is just a taste, I think, of the ultimate restoration that is taking place as Jesus continues his work of making all things whole and new and beautiful again. So I want to leave you this morning. The band's about to come back up. But as they do, I want to leave you with a quote from Mama Beth Moore. Some of y'all call her Aunt Beth. I call her Mama Beth. It's a long story. Because I love how she describes this fully welcoming table that we will all gather at one day. Here's what she says. One day, all of us in Christ will sit around an enormous table, exquisitively set with a feast of rich foods prepared in divine kitchens. No one will be left out. No one will be alone. No one will be nameless. No one unknown. No one with nowhere to go. We will all finally be home. I'm very thankful to share as imperfect as it is and as not fully realized as it might be, a table like this with you all. And I'm excited to continue as we go forward in this series talking about what it looks like to really live out this calling we have from Jesus. Okay, let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for who you are, what you've done, what you continue to do, God. The ways that you love us, the way you care for us, the way you take care of us. As I said, no matter what we have going on today, no matter what we're carrying with us, God, I pray that we would come and find rest in you, find hope in you, find healing and wholeness in you and each other. We are the body of Christ. God, work through us to be wholehearted people, a community of faith that radically welcomes, that sacrificially loves, that deeply cares for absolutely everyone. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.